Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we've got some more Advent treats for you. But first, a little heads up. In two weeks, we will not have a new podcast episode. We're going to be taking a well-earned break. So instead of tuning in, on December 28th for a new episode. I highly recommend tuning into BBC Radio while baking or sipping eggnog. I will probably be doing that. I love their radio plays at Christmas time. Or maybe you want to crank up A Very Maverick Christmas, a new album from Maverick City Music. Or maybe you're more a Sufjan Stevens fan or a King's College Choir fan. Or maybe some Peaceful Silence is going to be your cup of tea for that day. And then you can expect to hear from us again in the new year in January. We've got some great stuff lined up for 2024. Today, we've got an episode that will lightly leap from Advent to Christmastide. We'll revisit four conversations that we've had over the years, some of my favorites, starting with a conversation I had last Advent with Dr. James K.A. Smith. Jamie Smith is a public philosopher He's also editor-in-chief of Image Journal and author of many well-known books, including You Are What You Love and How to Inhabit Time. Part of our puzzlement as creatures in this time that we're in, in this broken time, Jamie tells us, is that we're not always sure what time it is, what times we're a part of, what are we supposed to do or be or when. And we're not always sure we have to live within time's limits at all, which can get us into trouble. How can we set our spiritual watches to God's boundless time while also resting within our creaturely boundaries? Surely the gifts of the liturgical calendar are part of that, but we're going to go in a different direction today. If God was willing to be born in time, maybe embracing our own limits is part of the way that we welcome him. Enjoy the conversation. You call time a spiritual adventure. What do you mean by that? 
Yeah, th- there's uh, that, that great line from Gustavo Gutierrez where he says something like, to hope in Christ is to believe in the adventure of history. And I, I just think to see time as a spiritual adventure is to see that when God calls creation into existence, he creates this incubator that is history and time, right? And I think embracing our creaturehood, receiving our creaturehood as a gift is now leaning into and recognizing the kinds of temporal creatures that we are, that we are sort of, we are shaped and live through history. We undergo time. So there's this prophetic element of reckoning with our past, but there's also this receptive element where now I'm trying to discern what are the unique sorts of possibilities that have been handed down to me by my history and my past and what I've undergone, which is now precisely what God is calling me to live into to answer God's call on my life now. And I I would say what's crucial. So I I really, I, I try to lean into us not being scared of contingency. Um, But I think it comes with a deep sense of God's withness throughout it. So so I don't need to be destabilized and derailed if the missional plan I had in place is thrown curveballs. Do you know what I mean? Like we we want the formulas, we want the control, and we want the app that tells us how to fix it rather than entrusting ourselves to the God who is in control and with us. I, 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 you know, the name of God that I think is most significant for this, this spiritual adventure of time is Emmanuel and, and uh, to, to adventure with the God who is with um, means that we sort of can more faithfully live out of control (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. because because we realize that Mm -hmm. faithfulness is not the same as us having figured it all out in advance. You talk about this problem that we have and that Christians really tend to have called dyschronometria. It's dyschronometria refers to the inability to keep time. And you say that a lot of Christians and Christian traditions suffer from dyschronometria. So what, what does that look like? And what yeah. does it mean when, when this is our, our state? There are different forms of, of it for Christian communities. And I think some have temptations that lean in other directions. So, so for example, I think, I think in, in American Christianity, particularly in American Protestantism, there's two curious facets of this, this chronometria, which is one, you actually think you are floating above history and surf history and stand from what I call a, a view from no when, because now you think you have you have mm-hmm. access to the eternal God. And so therefore we think, well, we can see the whole as if we are not conditioned by time, as if we are not embedded in the flux of history. So I think that does funky things. And then you get this relationship to the future, which is this kind of end times fixation where what you are waiting for is the escape pod that's descending to get you out of time. And the only take you have on history is just utter decline. Mm -hmm. But I would say another kind of, of disordered relationship to time that is very powerful is nostalgia. So I think the nostalgic impulse 
is very much alive and well. So it looks like it's very, you know, indebted to the past. It's grateful to the past. But the problem with nostalgia is not that it remembers. It's what it actively forgets. So that nostalgia is always an edited rendition of history. It's a kind of sentimentalized, romanticized Mm. version of a past. Mm. I'm all for the grateful reception and resourcement of the present by recognizing and retrieving and receiving the gifts of the past. I just think there's a difference between that posture, receiving gratefully those gifts of the past for the sake of living faithfully now and into the future, versus thinking what faithfulness looks like is turning back the clock. I don't think turning back the clock is ever a version of being faithful. I think it's a version of repristinating an imagined past. I also think we are most likely to be romantic about a past we've never experienced. Well, you could also see that as people recognizing a treasure of the past, recognizing a hunger for its benefits, and recapitulating it in a way that doesn't necessarily carry some of its baggage along with it. Let's say that nostalgia is the initial flawed state of things, but then there could be a movement, there could be a redemptive movement in that where someone says, where someone gives a more mature response, which is, you know what, let me recognize the good in this and see how I can reappropriate it for my time, for my community. I'm not saying that remembering is the problem. It's what we choose to forget in nostalgia. That's the issue. And it's also something else is at stake, it strikes me, which is that you, if you're indulging in nostalgia unchecked and unredeemed, then you're also setting yourself up for disappointment in anyone who doesn't agree with you, A, and B, in the times that you live in. So that if you're not careful, and I know this partly from experience, If you're not careful, you find more and more a disjunction between yourself and the actual context you're in and the actual relationships that you're in and create distance that doesn't need to be there. And then what can happen is that someone says to you or you say to yourself, well, prophets are always persecuted. So this distance is happening because I'm right, Right. not because I'm, I'm neglecting to really be attentive and receptive and discerning in, in the context that I'm in. You could say that what goes on in nostalgia is actually a refusal of the adventure. Hmm. Because what what we want to do is, and I get, I, I think it comes from a place of anxiety, which is also why it's very understandable. I think nostalgia looks for security. And what it finds is security in if we could go back to this where we knew what it looked like and we and and I can sort of receive a template of what we're supposed to do, it sort of mitigates my having to deal with the curveballs and the things that are thrown my way on the adventure. I, I just want us to realize that there's a spiritual risk to that because mm-hmm. now what's happening is you kind of want to live in control again. Whereas the adventure with God in time is about learning to let go of that need and entrusting ourselves to the with God. I think probably what I'm grappling with the most is just how humbling it is and how hard it is to be human sometimes. 
And yet the gifts that I have nonetheless found having undergone difficult things and discovering new ways of experiencing and knowing and understanding God that were pretty unimaginable for me as a younger person. But now I feel like I, I understand something of God's gifts and grace and mercy that I couldn't have understood except having undergone these things in my own past. Is, is there a story that you would feel comfortable sharing about this process for you? You know, the adventure of child rearing and marriage is, is you know, my wife and I have been married for 32 years. Oh, wow. Congrats. It has been the most significant. I know technically it's not a sacrament if I'm Protestant, but it's been, you know, such a significant means of grace. But the, the thing that we have done together is raise children. And that is its own adventure. And, and I think living through some of that, I have found myself with new capacities of compassion and humility and understanding and patience that I never, ever could have had before. I think I feel closer to God because of that. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I can share a little bit of a personal a testimony, if you will. Last year at Advent, Advent 2021, right on the cusp of Christmas, when I'm all excited to get extroverted and go to church and go to parties, I have all my plans laid out. I come down with a horrible cold that may have been COVID. So all my plans were sunk and I was on my couch all through Christmas experiencing Christmas, but also experiencing my limits. It, it's hard to br yeah. bring you into this yeah. moment, Jamie, but I, I can say that during this season of time, I started thinking about like my life over the past three or four or five years and saying, life does not look like what I thought it would. Whys and wherefores don't have clean edges. In life, there's just a lot of incoherence and a lot of just helplessness, frankly. Is this normal? I guess it is. Why don't things happen in certain ways? And by the way, each letting go is real. Um, with all respect to Buddhism, we aren't Buddhists. You and I are Christians. And so yeah. when something is let go, it's yeah. a real thing. It's an actual loss. It's not an illusion. You know, if we believe that Christ's own death and participating in and bringing these deaths into himself, and then his rising again, his ascending to the right hand of the Father as our advocate, sending his Holy Spirit, being deeply present and immersed in all of our reality in an unprecedented way, I mean, frankly, unprecedented even for God, because there was a yeah. time before he was incarnate. So this is yeah. this is also like yes. mind-blowingly, yes. you know, yes. which is, I almost was like, should I say that? Is it blasphemous? No, it's true. No, it's, it's exactly just... right. And this is why, I mean, the incarnation is so at the hinge of everything we're talking about. You know, there's 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 a, a Donald Hall poem. The, the poet Donald Hall was married to Jane Kenyon, who is also an amazing oh, poet. Oh, mm-hmm. There's a whole series of poems that he wrote after Kenyon's tragic death, too young mm -hmm. from from cancer, as I recall. And there's a there's a poem of his that I can just never get out of my head. It's called "Her Garden," because Jane was a was an avid gardener. And this is after her death. And and just the first couple of lines, if if, if you look it up, it's really amazing. But he says it's called "Her Garden." He says, "I let her garden go, let it go." let it go and it's like 
it, it's really sort of saying, I'm not going to live in any illusion here. I'm not going to pretend that Jane's still around tending the hydrangeas and the foxgloves. I'm going to let the garden go and, and to, to see it spiraling and, you know, mm. overgrown is, is actually a way of living into the loss. But then of course, to, to remember it in a poem is its own kind of, kind of keeping alive. It's a, it's a really marvelous poem. It's not lovely. Loss and loveliness. This time of year is so porous to both of those things. It tends to hold strong memories in a particular way. Cozy and lonesome memories, delicious, fun, and painful memories. If nostalgia can be a fruitless longing, on the other hand, when's the last time a good memory spurred you to hope or to a good act? Motivated you maybe to go to a family Christmas party you knew would not be like it was in 1991, but you have a good memory and you came anyway with a pie in your hand, ready to make a new memory, God help you, or to take a new relational risk. I think Clark Griswold in Christmas Vacation is learning how to leverage nostalgia for good rather than a breakdown of reality. Let's hope he gets there this year. Our next clip is from a conversation I had a few years ago with novelist H.C. Cross. Heather Cross is the author of Wilberforce and Grievous, two novels set in English boarding schools. Now, could any place be more cozy and Christmas-like than an English boarding school? Well, we talk about that. We talk about nostalgia, about writing, about Advent, and how uncomfortable or even dark Advent spaces, even in literature, can prepare us for unexpected gifts of light. So your novels take place in the 20s, the early 30s, in English boarding schools. And I want to be, I want to be cozy. I want to be comfortable. I want to, I want complacent bishops in armchairs. I want (laughs) tea and biscuits by the fire. But your books bring us into the reality of these boarding schools in the 20s and 30s. Um, in a way that that is almost uber real. It's it's almost in technicolor. Major changes are happening. Men who have been broken by being in the war coming back and being teachers and headmasters over boys that have lost parents who need father figures to impress, and so they take out their frustration on younger boys and in uh, in bullying and creating regimes. And it's damp all the time. And it feels, it's so intimate in in the boarding school that it's claustrophobic. And the food is so bad and the taps are always cold. How did you, what drew you into and through the dark side of this place and this time? I, I mean, I love the cozy, fun stories, but at a certain point, they bore me. Um, they're kind of like a sugar with nothing else in them. And so I imagined characters and imagined people who, in a way, to me, were real. Uh, And I I think, you know, nostalgia, you're right, it's so slippery and it can be very dangerous because it can be the end-all be-all. It can be a fantasy that you pretend is reality, but it can also be, I think, an avenue for feeling. It can open us up um, because in a st- and this is, I guess it's sort of like an edenic longing, right? And to me, that is, is indispensable of the human experience. And we can't 
let pretend that somehow we can get back there. <laughs> but yet, if you shut yourself off to that, then you shut yourself off to the longing for ultimately, it, you know, kind of things eternal, right? I mean, what does it mean if you're a person and you like keep your mind on things eternal? I'm like, I don't know eternity. I, what is heaven? I don't know. But I know nostalgia and I know a longing for times that I can't return to, for a longing for things in memory that I can't return to. And that's maybe the closest that I could come to understanding eternity. I'm not quite sure what the link is here, but it was coming to my mind as you were talking about nostalgia, and particularly nostalgia that is so endemic in the in the Anglican Episcopal Church for the Anglophilia, you know, <laughs> which can get so so obsessed with fakery, like it can be so profoundly empty, hideously so. Um, but it can also be spare no words, Heather. Spare well, no words. Okay, so she's speaking from. <laughs> she's really tell us how you really feel. <laughs> yeah, but. It can also, and I've had this experience with like being at, you know, an incredibly beautiful church that is maybe like the English cathedral experience, listening to say an even song with the choral repertoire performed exquisitely the way it was meant to be performed. And sometimes when that's happened, I've had this experience of, of like time is stacking up. History is stacking up. And I'm mm -hmm. here now in New York in this church with these singers and these people. And I'm also with the writer of this piece who's not with us anymore. And I'm with all the people through history. This is like the kind of, um, you know, the the community of saints who've, who've also experienced this. And every time it was played, it's opening up a door to eternity and to the divine. And I'm in it right now. And somehow all of time is stacked up right now. And I'm now and I'm also in the past. And that's, that's a really exciting experience. And I think that when nostalgia is working fruitfully, to use your words, and I hope that this is the case at times in my book, that it's, it's opening that door for characters and, and for readers too. The name of your school is St. Stephen's, who's he's named after the first martyr. Mm -hmm. So I'm positive that there's a level there um, that's, that you intend to be instructive for us. You know, the whole thing with the school, they have their patrons day in the middle of the summer, really on St. St. John, you know, day, but yet because they're the St. Stephen's day is in the middle of winter vacation when no one's there and they can't celebrate it. And it's also depressing and they just want this midsummer thing, the longest day. Yeah. Uh, a lot of major action takes place on patrons day and in this midsummer day and the midsummer evening that lasts so long, like a major, major crux of the plot. On the other hand, the Christmas Eve, um, Christmas holidays is the time in which another major um, crux um, in, in the plot and in the lives of the two main characters happens in your second book. So I just find, I find that interesting as well. Um, and again, as an author, also as a writer, I know that you, so many things happen by by accident, by a kind of blessed serendipity that that a theme or or a symbol comes out. And you didn't start out, you didn't write in your notebook, um, must expand on theme of light and darkness. <laughs> but I mean, you know, the shortest day of the year and the longest day of the year, those tend to come out, um, you know, as as you're working with characters who become more and more human. Um, they find themselves in symbolic situations, which is exactly how actual human beings find themselves. There's an intense uh, sensitivity in, in me as a person 
I don't know how well it comes across to setting, to time, to place, to weather, to light, to times of the year, um, to, and so I think that drove, um, on an intuitive emotional level, probably a lot of these ultimately unconscious choices about when things would happen in the year. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that fascinated me most, um, and which we've talked about at some length is nostalgia, but you use actually in your second book, the Greek word that's, that means homecoming where the word nostalgia comes from. Is, is that right? You use that word very pointedly if people want a good Advent practice, I mean, get into a good novel where something very troubling is happening to the character and they can't, and they can't get out of it because where there's longing to get out of it. And that's only where you stay. That seems to be nostalgia. That's unfruitful where you're longing to escape what's real, but Nostalgia in the sense of a homecoming is also oriented toward the future. And that's, that's a very Christian concept that there will be a day when all tears are wiped away, when all, you know, all sin and death and, and, and pain in the way we know it now are relieved. But, but those things that come out of places of pain, the heroism, the redemption, um, the love, the heartbreaking moments of being able to really see another person, all of those things are, are preserved and opened up uh, fully to us. And so we, you know, are taking time now to look forward to that day. So I think your books could be a good way uh, to enter and school books that aren't too easy to read uh, can be a good way to enter into that time uh, of longing that, that we're experiencing right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. Um, because Advent is longing, is, is awaiting. You know, being a Christian writer, which I would call myself, um, and yet writing literary fiction, you know, you're not kind of writing something didactic, you're not intending to put your religious message into your fiction so explicitly. And yet, as a, as a human being, I'm always looking for the movement of God in the world. And so I look for it in, in the world that I made too. Um, and so the more real that the characters and their interactions and their struggles are, um, the more, as the author, I'm looking for those breakings in of, of, um, of God into their world. Hey there, podcast listener. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you probably know that The Living Church is not just a podcast. Oh no, my friend. TLC is a publishing ministry with a unique magazine, independent church news reporting, a stellar theology blog, resources for parish ministry, many of them free. I could go on. Stop me now. Stop me now. We're rooted in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, but we have a big heart for the unity of all God's people. You know that I love that you're here, but I don't want you to just stay in the podcast space and miss out on other ways our ministry might serve you. You can go to livingchurch.org and see what all TLC offers. How can we serve you today? One way we might serve you is coming up in September. We're hosting an event with an amazing community of friends at All Souls Episcopal Church in Oklahoma City, a conference called The Human Pilgrimage. What does it mean to be human? How do we live fully as creatures loved, limited, and liberated by God? 
Join The Living Church September 26th to 28th in Oklahoma City and be refreshed by three days of world-class keynotes, friendship, and meditation on who we are as creatures in Christ. Right now, you also get 15% off all tickets with the promo code EARLYBIRD. Go to livingchurch.org forward slash events for more information and to buy your tickets. And I hope to see you there. Now that we're on a roll talking about books, let's continue into a cozy chat that I had with prolific reader and writer Dr. Lauren Winner about books and reading. Lauren is Associate Professor of Christian Spirituality at Duke Divinity School. She is also the author of many books herself, including Girl Meets God, A Cheerful and Comfortable Faith, and Characteristic Damage. How can reading, good books, great books, and good enough books, introduce us to Christ, to His Church, and even to His Mother? If, I, if I'm imagining you with a stack of books at your elbow, I, I feel like we'll have plenty to talk about. <laughs> plenty to talk about. So when did you first know that you were a bibliophile? Uh, and when did a book first have a definite, what you could name as now, spiritual impact on you? So I think I knew I was a bibliophile, though I'm sure that I didn't know that word. In fourth grade, so... I was in fourth grade in the early 1980s, and our shopping mall in the town where I lived had a B. Dalton books and a Walden books, and I used to go to those all the time, but I need to make super clear that I did not read anything elevating. What I loved was a series, like a teen series, so I read all of the Sweet Valley High books. There was a series called Seniors, something in the Sweet Valley High and the Seniors that they were, I don't know, leading more elegant, elevated, probably wealthier, frankly, lives than I was leading. So on the one hand, it just seems completely appalling and awful to me that what I spent my sort of imaginatively formative years reading was Sweet Valley High. On the other hand, I can I can see even in my adult reading, um, I mean, I think reading has lots of purposes, but but escapism is one of them. And I think articulating like the fantasy desires that you have for your life before you can actually name them, you kind of read your way toward something that you desire. And that, that's actually, that actually has been a big part of my faith life that I've sort of read. I read about Christianity for a number of years before I actually became a Christian. And I grew up Jewish. And as a young Jewish girl, like basically I did stop reading the Sweet Valley High stuff in sixth or seventh grade. And I started reading a lot about Judaism and I kind of read my way into a pretty rich life of Jewish practice. I'm slightly ashamed to admit that the Julia Spencer Fleming mysteries, which feature this really cool female Episcopal priest, um, were actually like a not insignificant part of my discernment about ordination. I paid attention to why I wanted to hang out with her and her life. At various points, before I've had the courage to actually name for myself that I want to do something, converting to Christianity, being chief among them, I, I have, I have te tested the waters in reading. I did read some memoirs before I became a Christian or as I was becoming a Christian. I did read a few memoirs that were really important for me. Facing East by Frederica Matthews Green. But the book that probably the single greatest impact had on me in my conversion 
by a book was indeed middlebrow Christian fiction. And it was uh, At Home in Mitford and actually the sequel to it, the first two novels by Jan Karen in the Mitford. And they depict small town, West North Carolina, an Episcopal priest, more of an evangelical Episcopal priest. And, you know, the books don't really have plots. They just follow Father Tim as he does his thing as a priest and ministers to people. So I stumbled over those books the summer before I was a senior in college. And I mean, I was just captivated by them. I I was so compelled by the depiction they offered of lives that seem to be infused by faith kind of at, you know, in every corner of life. That's interesting because I would assume that by the time you get to the Mitford novels that your life is already suffused by piety, that you're already, you know, finding these, I mean, Judaism is all about daily incarnate and incarnated ways of, of living out this covenant relationship um, with the Lord God. So why were you drawn to Christianity in particular, if you already um, were in this place of, of great piety, where, you know, your everyday life was reflecting more and more your Orthodox faith? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a question I've asked myself a lot, but have never actually been asked by anyone else, because I'm very aware that when I describe this attraction to sort of piety infusing life, that it could it could be taken to imply something that I absolutely do not mean, um, which is it could be taken to imply that somehow the choreography of observant Judaism is not that when I think you're exactly right and so well said. So it might be that I was actually prepared by years of observant Judaism to be attuned to Christian iterations of that kind of infusion. Why are any of us drawn to the faith if we didn't grow up in it? Why are we drawn deeper? I mean, ultimately, you know, what it, What was it about the the fragrance of, of holiness or the fragrance of Jesus Christ that you picked up on through these um, uh, not great literature, but good, <laughs> you know, good enough, definitely good enough, like a good enough literature <laughs> books, yeah, good enough literature. But Lauren, I asked you to come today prepared with, and now you have a stack of books at your elbow. Um, to take us through a few of the books that have had some spiritual impact on your own life. Yes. So I've already mentioned At Home in Mitford. I also have here two books of sonnets. One is a collection, a Norton anthology called The Making of a Sonnet that sort of goes through the earliest sonnet forms all the way to contemporary sonnets. Um, and then a recent book by Jeannie Marie Walker, Pilgrim, um, You Make the Path by Walking, which is a collection of sonnets. And I read sonnets, you know, in high school, like everyone else did. What I apparently didn't learn in high school, like either was never taught or didn't retain, was that a sonnet always has a turn. And I just love that. I love looking for that turn when reading a sonnet. But I've also started looking for those turns in the world. Um, and I think it's it's kind of great to go through a day in life looking for sonnet shapes. You know, where is the moment of 
a possible shift in perspective. Two books that I read every Advent. Um, one is Rumor Gardens in This House of Breed. Have you read that book? You would love that book, I think. But this is a book that is a depiction of a woman who later in life, which is to say, I believe her early 40s, not that late in life, but um, in the logic of the book, it's later in life, decides to make a religious profession to a monastic community or decides that she is called to pursue that. And so she presents herself to this monastic house and there's, there's much internal um, pondering about whether she actually is too old, which is to say whether she's been so formed in the ways of the world that she will not actually be able to function, thrive, flourish, etc., in a monastic community. It's a great book about formation. It's a great, it's one of the books. So the, the Rowan Williams book that I read every Advent is a very short book, Ponder These Things, which is his book about praying with icons of the Virgin. And it's terrific. And it was my first, was the first thing I read that really opened up for me that I might have a, a relationship to have with Mary. I'd say a recommendation for a book about Mother Mary brings us into Christmas tide pretty well. How by bearing God does Mary help us understand Christ better or understand our place in salvation better? Our final clip is from a conversation between the Reverend Dr. Wesley Hill and Dr. Amy Peeler that I enjoyed so much being a fly on the wall for. They are both associate professors of New Testament, Amy at Wheaton College and Wes at Western Theological Seminary. And here we pop in on their chat about the mother of our Lord, jumping off of Amy's lovely book, Women and the Gender of God. I think I first learned that you were working on some of the themes in this book when I heard that you and your colleague, Matthew Milliner, who teaches in the art department at Whedon, that you were co-teaching a class at Whedon on Mary. Yes. And so I, a couple things there that I think are interesting. Number one is evangelicals. I went to Wheaton College myself, so I know they're my tribe, they're my family. And we don't, we don't often prioritize thinking about Mary in the way that we should do. Yes. I also think that for a lot of our listeners, coming from the more Anglo-Catholic tradition associated with the living church, are very used to talking about Mary and, and are eager to see we evangelicals kind of hop on board. Matthew Milner's book is called Mother of the Lamb. Yes. And it's a it's an art historical discussion of a of a famous style of iconography with with Mary and, and the Christ child. And Matt and I are long-term friends. I mean, that's mm. another great gift. We started seminary together in mm. 2002, and now we live on the same street. And so he has known about my work for decades. And as I had been very interested in the fatherhood of God, that's my dissertation work in Hebrews, he just kind of said offhandedly, we were having Thanksgiving dinner, if I remember correctly, like you're talking about fatherhood and sonship, you really are missing something if you mm. don't talk about Mary. Mm. And I knew that had been his work and seeing his mm. passion. Mm. I said, well, I think he's actually right. There's something 
vastly important mm. that I've not paid attention to given my background. Mm. And so once I started diving in by virtue of my own discipline mm. in the New Testament, really giving attention to her story, primarily mm. in Matthew and Luke, I was just overwhelmed at the yeah. riches. Yeah. I mean, I think people kind of raise an eyebrow, oh, Mary at Wheaton, like people yeah. want to know more. But students seem to um, be hungry That's wonderful. for this. Wonderful. They, they have a sense that those who have not thought about her story, except for maybe a week or two at Christmas, yes. have this deep sense that something's missing. And yes. so they kind of flock to the class. We've had to turn them away. <laughs> that's so, excellent. That's, that's the kind of problem you want to have. Exactly. Exactly. So if there are pockets of resistance, we don't know about it. And there's yeah. so many that want to learn more that right. we've had a rich and an amazing experience every time. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the book itself, um, so there are three chapters on Mary, which are dominantly exegetical. Mm -hmm. Her ascent to God in the Annunciation right. is very important for me to get into the weeds, as you say, to see yes. that she was not forced, but yes. completely had choice and freely embraced both the cost and the benefit of saying yes to God. It was important for me to think about her embodiment and mm -hmm. how even in light of Jewish purity laws, what it meant for her to house the holiness, the, the body of God yes. and the person of the son. Yes. As so I'm paying attention, especially to Luke. And mm. then I have a chapter on her ministry mm. in which I pay attention to all the things that she does for the kingdom. So yes, giving birth to Jesus, parenting him, but also shaping his ministry, the wedding at Cana, right. being a participant at Pentecost. And so there's a whole lot more to say about her than her motherhood. Yes, yes. we know her because she gives birth to Jesus, but she is a multidimensional yes. person in the New Testament. But for a very long time, really since my dissertation, I've been asking a different question. How do we speak of God correctly? Yes. When we are instructed by virtue of scripture and tradition to call God Father, yes. what are we doing? And right. recognizing that many feminist, womanist theologians have said there are problems with that language. Yes. In a final, the final chapter is on the maleness of Jesus. Mm. <laughs> Let me say very clearly, I believe that Jesus was male. <laughs> I also have gotten interesting questions on this point. Totally do. Yes. <laughs> at least the way that we read the New Testament, right. right? There's no kind of questions about this. Right. But I do believe that if we affirm the virginal conception, which I do wholeheartedly, then he is male in a way that is distinct, yeah. <laughs> that he gets his humanity from her yes. miraculously through the Holy Spirit. So I reflect on really the maleness of Christ in his embodiment and how that is unparalleled yes. and therefore has implications for all of us who are caught up into participation. Yes. These are not two separate projects. How we speak rightly of God is by paying attention to the mm. way in which God came mm. among us mm. in the story of the incarnation. I think about embodiment of both. I think about gender of both. Yes. I think about roles of both God yes. and Mary. You know, Amy, I, for me, one of the most theologically provocative claims in the book, I think, is, is the one you just alluded to, that because Jesus is male in a way that differs from every other male, insofar as he's born of a virgin, that means that his maleness can be inclusive and and universally accessible and identifiable in a way that it 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 wouldn't be otherwise. I to be totally honest, I wasn't sure what I think about that claim. Do we need to say that in order to have a male savior who can save women, he needed to be born of a virgin 
or, or, or could, I mean, I'm with you. I believe in the virginal conception of Jesus, but (laughs) if Jesus weren't virginally conceived, would would that represent a a blockage to his Mm -hmm. being able to be universally savingly accessible, so to speak? Does that make sense? It does. And that's a that's an insightful question that I really appreciate. And some of the conversations I've had over the last few months, this has come up a mm. few times. And so mm. I really appreciate the attentiveness from mm. which this question comes. At base, of course, we would have to say that God can save however God desires. Sure. Sure. That caveat being out of the way. I would want to fl- reflect more on this because you sure. put question actually in a way that I think I've been able to hear it maybe in some previous conversations okay. it was a bit muddy to me. Yeah. So that's thank you for that. That's quite a gift sure. actually. I I think I would want to say that if our savior was not virginally conceived that still being totally human, yeah. he could be the representative high priest for all of us. So I don't want to communicate a necessity to yeah. kind of bind God into, yes. hey, if you want to save women, it had to be this. Sure. Sure. I, I would not want to communicate that. Would it be fair to say one of the theological issues here is, are there separate male and female natures oh, such, such that if Christ took a male nature therefore he's incapable of saving women or or is there something fundamentally human exactly. that unites that unites all of us that's actually incredibly helpful so yes i would affirm the imago day yeah. like a shared a common humanity i am believe i'm coming from it from the angle of i think this is what scripture actually gives us yes this is what Matthew and Luke at great, great cost in their era said, this is a virginal conception. They give us this truth. I think Paul is actually aware of it and reflects on it. That's what I'm thinking about these days. Mm, But mm. given that, and it is a given, then to me, that seems an incredible grace, not a necessity, but a giftedness in that if this is how our Savior came, if we are understanding our texts correctly, then my goodness, this inclusiveness, and this is an important point to me because were Christ conceived of a male and a female, normal human conception, we would still be caught up to and saved in him. And then maybe we would say the participation in Christ is on on a spiritual level, which is highly important, Right. that his body is Mm. distinct Mm. to me brings in the embodied nature of our faith, that there's something that I am caught up into his flesh in a way right. that would not have been true if God chose to come among us in a different way. Well, and you know, it's as you're speaking, I'm wondering perhaps if the the theological category of fittingness would, mm. would be good here. So yeah. it's not a necessity, but there is something fitting about it taking place this way, that it 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 highlights something about the quality of grace and our salvation that we might need to have highlighted. And a fittingness also, it seems to me, to unite Christ as the recapitulation mm. of the first human. Yeah. The first human. Yeah. So I, I, I do believe, as so many of the early fathers make this comparison, this Adam and Eve, Christ and Mary yes. parallel, there's something really fitting yes. about yes. that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Very right. 
that reminds me of a question we ask our students in class. We kind of go through all the explicit texts, but then mm -hmm. I have a day in which I have us read things like John 1, Hebrews yeah. 1, Romans 1. Yes. Beginning of where is maybe, where is Mary assumed if not yes. explicit? And I yes. say, yes, we're, we're reading some gaps of the text here. We have to be yes. quite cautious. But if we see the unity of our canon, it's very plausible. They all know he's human. They all know actually he had a mother. So there is something truthful at base in those reflections. Exactly. And so that kind of idea is, 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 as you said a moment ago, fitting to scripture. Mm -hmm. God is named as father. God has maternal qualities. God has paternal qualities, but is only named as father. There is something actually right about saying that God is father, not mother. And, and I have to, again, give, give praise to, to Matt Milliner here. Mm. He's the one that gave me this phrase. Jesus called God father because he already had a mother. He already had one who yeah. gave birth to him and yeah. nursed him. That was not God. In yeah. the incarnation, God the Father, through the overshadowing presence of the Holy Spirit, causes the birth of the Son in the flesh yeah. by partnering with Mary. Now, I, I would be a little bit more flexible to say that if someone's prayer life or even in a church service, there are a lot of people who really spiritually wrestle with paternal life of God. And I, you know, that has not been my experience, but I want to respect and give space for those for whom it is. Very much so. I hope that I could maybe through relationship lead them to a place where they see that when they call God Father, what they're really saying is that God became human for me. And then I can address God in this way, just as Jesus did. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church. I hope that you'll place a gift, large or small, in the Living Church's Christmas stocking this year by going to livingchurch.org forward slash donate or clicking the link in the show notes. But whether you can or can't give this year, I am grateful for your ears, for your support, for your listenership, and for your feedback. If you've liked us in 2023, please forward a couple of your favorite episodes to friends and family or leave us a good review. In 2024, we're rolling out Conversations with Stanley Hauerwas and Ephraim Radner, a book chat with John Baer, an exploration of Jesus through medieval eyes, a look at neurodivergence in the classical classroom, and much more. Until then, I'm Amber Noel, your host. Have a joyous week four of Advent, a blessed Christmas very, very soon, and a happy new year. It's been good to be with you in 2023. Peace.